Welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. If you feel like you should be rewarded for your time listening to or reading the journal feed, we offer CME credits now through a partnership with Hippo Education. If you'd like more details on that, you can visit our website at journalfeed.org. Now on to this week's summaries, which were brought to you by the first class, Thomas Davis, Michael Wolf, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. The first article for this week was titled Variation in False Negative Rate of Reverse Transcriptase Polymerase Chain Reaction-Based SARS-CoV-2 Tests by Time Since Exposure out of the Annals of Internal Medicine. I have tried to design a diagnostic test, and it's devilish. The numbers always feel like they're conspiring against you. Scientists were recently given the forceful motivation to make a test for SARS-CoV-2 and do so in record time. So we're left with no gold standard to compare anything to. So in this study, they did a lot of repeating tests because we have nothing to compare it to except for that test itself. So at first glance, it might seem silly to repeat a test over and over, but this type of strategy can actually help us determine the false positive rate of our tests for COVID-19. And from there, we can see when it's best to test for the most accurate results. This will help us inform treatment, dispositions, and when healthcare workers can return to hospitals. This study was a pooled analysis of seven previously published studies on COVID-19 testing. Most studies did so with RT-PCR and counted patients as positive if they had any positive tests. Two studies also included probable cases based on clinical criteria or antibody testing. So with all that, they fit the pooled data to a logistical regression model to calculate the expected false negative rate on each day of testing. They found that tests on day three after symptom onset had the lowest rate of false negatives at 20%. Testing on the same day as symptom onset had a 38% chance of false negatives. If you test after exposure but before symptom onset, the tests were pretty much worthless and false negative rates were up to 100%. So, in a spoonful, using RT-PCR to test for SARS-CoV-2 infection has the highest likelihood of detecting infection when done on day three after symptom onset. That said, the false negative rate was still pretty high at 20%. Testing earlier was essentially worthless. Now the second article, Research Utilization for Patients with Distal Radius Fractures in the Pediatric Emergency Department out of the JAMA Open Network. For radius fractures, if the degree of coronal or sagittal angulation is less than 20 degrees and the shortening is less than one centimeter, it's debatable whether or not young children actually benefit from a fracture reduction. Young children's bones remodel very well after injury, so perfect alignment isn't needed to preserve their function in the long run. That said, have kids with mild displacement been getting needless sedation and reductions? This was a retrospective review of patients under 10 years old with distal radius fractures to determine the rate of potentially inappropriate sedation and closed reductions. Of the 258 children, 142 of them underwent reductions. Of those receiving a reduction, 27% of them had potentially unnecessary reductions based on the review of the radiographs. Again, that's 20% of radius fractures potentially receiving unnecessary reduction and sedation. Keep in mind, though, that this was a single-center study and retrospective. 
but it was written up by orthopedic surgeons, and they are, I guess, the experts on this. It might be difficult to accept not reducing some of these, but regardless, it seems like there is certainly room for improvement. Sedation and closed reduction is not without its own risks. In the study, 7% had adverse effects from sedation. All were mild hypoxia or apnea. On top of it, reductions increase costs and length of stay in the emergency department. So if outcomes are all the same, in select cases, a simple splint or cast without sedation might be better. In a spoonful, over one quarter of children under 10 with distal radius fractures may be getting sedation and fracture reduction unnecessarily. Next, the third article titled Time and Volume of Crystalloid in Blood Products in Pediatric Trauma, an East Multicenter Prospective Observational Study out of the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Children with hemorrhagic shock due to trauma have high in-hospital mortality rates. And the Advanced Trauma Life Support Guidelines are now moving more towards crystalloid restriction, certainly in adults. But as of yet, it's been hard to make recommendations in the pediatric populations due to limited evidence. And so we have this study. This was a multi-center prospective observational study enrolling pediatric trauma patients presenting to level one pediatric trauma centers with elevated age-adjusted shock index, SIPA, indicative of hemorrhagic shock. A total of 1,471 patients from 24 centers were enrolled, with an overall hospital mortality of 5.3%. About 40% received one crystalloid bolus, 20% received blood, and 10% had massive transfusion activation. Just over half of patients who got more than one crystalloid bolus went on to get a transfusion. Patients who got blood first before crystalloids received less total fluids than those who got crystalloids first despite similar injury severity scores. These transfused patients were more likely to be older, have penetration injuries, and higher injury severity scores. They had a higher mortality as well at 23% versus the others at less than 1%, but that's likely due to severity of injury. Now then, this study showed that each crystalloid bolus received prior to transfer increased the odds of requiring extended time on a ventilator and more days in the ICU and a hospital. All in all, this confirms what already makes sense. The best treatment for hemorrhagic shock is, of course, blood and not crystalloids. This will need to be studied further, though. But immediate transfusion or after poor response to just one bolus of crystalloids in unstable trauma patients may be warranted. So, in a spoonful, resuscitating pediatric trauma patients in hemorrhagic shock with more than one crystalloid bolus is associated with longer mechanical ventilation, ICU, and hospital length of stay. Now, the fourth article, comparing emergency department first attempt intubation success with standard geometry and hyperangulated video laryngoscopes out of the annals of emergency medicine. More and more, we move towards greater and greater chance of first pass success. As the technology becomes more commonplace and accessible, part of this movement is heading towards video laryngoscopy. And if that's the case, we need to perfect that approach as well. This study decided to compare standard geometry blades and hyperangulated blades, so let's have a look. Data from the National Emergency Airway Registry of almost 12,000 intubations using video laryngoscopy on patients 14 or older with either standard blade or hyperangulated blades were analyzed for this study. So after adjustment for known confounding variables, the primary outcome of first pass success was similar in both groups. On top of that, rates of adverse events were also similar for both blade types. 
While this seems to show that emergency physicians are quite good with both blade types, there are a few limitations to the study that could limit generalizability. Namely, this was not an RCT, so while they controlled for as much as they could, there were several effects that could play a role in blade selection and success rates. There was also substantial variation between the sites. So, in a spoonful, emergency medicine physicians using video laryngoscopes had similar first-pass success rates using either the standard geometry or hyperangulated blades. So until better data comes out by way of an RCT, stick with what you're most comfortable with and feel that the situation requires. Now, finally, onto the last article titled Electrocardiographic Right Ventricular Strain Precedes Hypoxic Pulseless Electrical Activity Cardiac Arrests. Looking Beyond Pulmonary Embolism out of the Journal of Resuscitation. Some of my favorite ECG findings are those that hint at the future, kind of like Welland's waves, giving us a warning of disaster to come. So here we have just that, analyzing changes in ECG in the minutes leading up to a patient going into pulseless electrical activity or asystole. This was a retrospective study of 140 adult inpatients with continuous ECG monitoring prior to PEA or asystole arrest. Confounding patients like those with pulmonary hypertension and LVAD or on ECMO were excluded. Acute signs of right ventricular strain on ECG preceded arrest in almost half of patients, at 47% of patients, and this was due to pulmonary embolism in only 4% of those, with most instead being due to worsening respiratory illness such as pneumonia, ARDS, or other forms of shock. And for those patients who had right ventricular strain prior to arrest, who then went on to have return of spontaneous circulation, echo showed a new right ventricular dysfunction in 41% of them. The median time for them to see right ventricular strain prior to rest was 7.2 minutes. That's not a lot of time, but these minutes could be precious. This paper defined a definite right ventricular strain as morphological changes in lead V1 that were consistent with progressive delay in right ventricular depolarization. This might include a notch in the S-wave, progression to an RSR prime pattern, or incomplete or full right bundle branch block. Plus, on top of that, at least two of the following signs of right ventricular ischemia or right axis deviation. These were an ST elevation in V1, a rightward ST elevation vector in the limb leads, or a right axis deviation in the limb leads. For a look at what this actually resembles on ECG, I will refer you to the blog for a breakdown, and of course, you can also see it in the original paper. Now then, if you happen to listen to the advice of Animal Matu, he always says not to trust the computer. But that advice is bound to become less and less true. With AI and machine learning, making use of signs like this could be a real possibility. In a spoonful, nearly half of inpatient PEA and asystole arrest patients have acute right ventricular strain pattern on continuous ECG prior to the event. All right, guys, let's do a quick wrap up of everything we covered today. First, the best time to test for COVID-19 is on day three, with the lowest false negative rate at 20% by RT-PCR. Second, more than one in four children under 10 might be undergoing unneeded sedation and reduction for radius fractures. Third, kids aren't just little adults, but they may also benefit from crystalloid restriction. More than one bolus of crystalloid in pediatric trauma patients was associated with increased time on a ventilator, as well as longer stay in ICU and in the hospital. Fourth, first-pass success rates for intubation with video laryngoscopy were similar for ER physicians, whether they use a standard blade or a hyperangulated one. 
Finally, continuous ECG on inpatients showed acute right ventricular strain patterns in half of the patients in the minutes leading up to PEA or asystole. And that's it for this week, everybody. Of course, links to all the articles can be found at journalfeed.org, or if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. So we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.